we are in a series called The Long Church. We've been talking about what it looks like not just to grow old as a church, but to be long in our faithfulness as a church. Talked about what it means if we do something and we keep doing it every day of our lives. What happens if we grow old and grow faithful at the same time? Because we're a church that's not just trying to turn a certain age. We're a church that's trying to become something that God has destined us and called us to become in the earth. We're an until heaven church and an everyday church. And the title of today's message is The Long Serve. What happens if we give our lives to Jesus and keep giving them to him? What happens if we serve Jesus and keep serving him? We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. You can read that. Read along with me. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his friend and disciple, Timothy. This is the word of the Lord. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Would you pray with me for a moment again? Father, help us to hear from you this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to comprehend the voice of the Lord for us. Come and have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of 2 Timothy is the Apostle Paul's final letter that, he, that we have a record of in Scripture. It was written at the end of his life to uh, his young friend and disciple, Timothy. And it's written from a jail cell in Rome. And although this is not the first time Paul has written a letter from a jail cell, he knows it will likely be the last time. Uh, He can see the writing on the wall, so to speak, that this is an imprisonment that he does not expect to get out of. He expects, rightfully so, that it will end in his execution for his faith. And so what you have in the book of 2 Timothy is the closest thing that we have to Paul's final words, his final bits of wisdom and of advice to Timothy and by extension, all of us. Now, I don't know if you've ever gotten great advice. I love getting great advice. Those little nuggets that kind of change the trajectory of your life or they they utterly alter your perspective on a certain thing. I don't know if you've ever had somebody in your life that's given you great advice. I got some great advice one time about how to receive advice. It's advice about receiving advice. I'll share it with you this morning. It goes like this. You should never take advice from somebody you wouldn't switch places with. That's good advice. If you want marriage advice, probably shouldn't ask a single person. No offense, single people. If you are trying to make some investments and make some money and save up and make some moves, you probably don't want to ask a broke person how to make money. If you want to get in shape and go to the gym and be healthier, you probably should ask the biggest, buffest dudes in the church how to do that. That's what I did. They bully me into the gym every week, and I only go because I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't. 
And they're both here today, so. <laughs> we'll back up for a second. The point is this. You should listen to people that you want to be like. Makes sense. The Apostle Paul lived one of the finest Christian lives that we have record of. He was what most of us wish we could be. He was anointed. He was called by God. He was gifted. He was bold and courageous. He was fruitful in his ministry. Everything he touched, life seemed to happen. He's everything that I think most of us want to be like. And here we have some of his final words about how to live the Christian life. What is Paul talking about? Paul, in this passage, is talking about how to play the game. He's not talking about practice. He's talking about how to play the game. How to walk the Christian life faithfully so that you end well. How to serve Jesus every day of your life until the very end. And I think Paul highlights three things for us that I want to talk about today. Talks about what's poured out, what we're called into, and what's stored up for us. First verse of this passage, Paul writes, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I think at this moment, Paul is reflecting back It's a pensive moment in his jail cell, and he's thinking back about what he did with the second chance that God gave him. You know, there's a motivational quote I've heard a number of times. It's pretty good. It goes something like this. Everybody has two lives. The first begins when you're born, and the second when you find out why. It's pretty good. It's pretty good advice. For everyone who is a believer of God, we know that that is absolutely true for us. We have two lives. The first is when we're born. And the second is when we're born again. When we have an encounter with Jesus, that remarkably alters the course of our life and puts us on a new path. And this, I believe, is what Paul is thinking about as he writes this passage. If you don't know Paul's story, Paul uh, was actually named Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. Why that's important is that the Pharisees and the members of the Sanhedrin in this time were persecuting, arresting, and imprisoning Christians. They did not see Jesus as the Son of God. They saw him as something entirely different and as a fraud. And they saw the ministry and the teaching of Jesus to be a threat to the Jewish faith. Paul was certain of this. He was an advocate of it, and he was zealous for it. So he spent his life overseeing and participating in the persecution of Christians. And Saul, shortly after he oversees the execution of a man named Stephen, who is a disciple of Jesus, he is on his way to Damascus. And he's specifically on his way to Damascus so that he can capture, arrest, and bring back bound Christians, bringing them back to Jerusalem to be prosecuted. And on the road to Damascus... The resurrected Jesus appears to him in a vision. In this brilliant and blinding light, Saul falls back to his knees and the voice of Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, who are you, Lord? He says, Jesus. And he tells him to go find a man named Ananias who will heal him. Saul, Saul does that. He's wrestling with the moment that he just encountered because if you're Saul and you know the life you have lived, persecuting and arresting 
Christians and followers of Jesus and his way because you did not see him as the son of God. You saw him as a fraud. And then he appears to you supernaturally and speaks to you. I'm not thinking he's going to be merciful to me. I'm thinking that's the end for me. I have angered God so much. He came to knocking at my door. And so Paul is contemplating this as his vision returns. And it says that a few days after Paul's sight returns, he shows up in the temple synagogues preaching that Jesus is the son of God. Why is this important? Paul's testimony has to do with the way that he sees Jesus. He did not see him as the son of God. He was blinded by Jesus, this radical encounter with Jesus. And when he opens his eyes, he sees Jesus rightly and therefore sees people rightly. Because when you see Jesus for who he is, you begin to see his people the way that he sees them. And so Paul's life now radically pivots and changes. The trajectory and the course of his life in ministry is altered forever. And now he becomes a faithful apostle and disciple of Jesus. This is what happens when we accurately encounter Christ. It alters the course of our story. This is my story. I've shared it uh, here a couple times. I had a successful career in industry as a management consultant for almost a decade. Great career path, great accomplishment and success. But I knew that I was called to something different. And when Jesus called me into that, it wasn't a question of like, all right, let me wrap up some things here. Let me meet some marks here. Let me figure out this and that. It was when and where. And what do you need me to do? My encounter with Jesus altered the trajectory and the course of my life, much like it did Paul and much like it did many of you in this room. And so when Paul says, my life is being poured out as a drink offering, we can begin to understand what Paul is saying. Because a drink offering, you've got to understand, is one type of many types of offering you could bring to the uh, temple to sacrifice on the altar. You might be familiar with a burnt offering, a meal offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, and there was a drink offering among others. And a drink offering was always given an acknowledgement and remembrance of God's completed work. That God did something great for you. You acknowledge that and you come to the altar, you make your sacrifice, and then you pour out your drink offering, your wine, upon the altar. This is not pouring one out for the homies. It's not that. It's out of joy and celebration, pouring out on the altar an offering, thanking God, for the completed work in your life. And the thing about a drink offering is a drink offering requires you to pour all of it out. None is left for the offerer. And so when Paul says, my life is being poured out like a drink offering, we begin to understand that when you encounter Christ, you don't just give yourself, you give all of yourself. And you do it in response to the completed work that God has done in you. That because he has offered you salvation and given you the gift of the Holy Spirit and has begun the redemptive, transforming work in your life, that he has, he has blessed you, he has forgiven you, he has come to dwell with you in response to the goodness of God, our right response is to pour our lives out for him. 
gladly, in joy, in response to who he is and what he's done. This is the call for each and every one of us who follow Jesus, that our whole lives are offered to him. As we consider our testimony and our story, and as we stand before a gracious Jesus who gave his life for me, my response is that I give my life to you. I pour it all out. I leave nothing in the tank. I'm going to end empty. I'm going to get to the end of things and have nothing left, God, because you deserve it all. Paul knew better than anybody else how messed up he was and how messed up his life was before he met Christ and the damage that he did. And he comes to this moment realizing my just and righteous response is to pour out all that I am for Jesus. And so is the calling for each of us. But Paul then goes on to talk about the things that we are called into. Because we're not just called to be poured out, we're also called into some things. He goes on to detail what I, what I would say is just the journey of the believer. He says, I fought the good fight, finished the race, I have kept the faith. When we come to Jesus, and when we rightly understand who he is to us, we are not left the same, we are utterly and eternally changed. And not just are we changed for our benefit, we now begin to see and to realize the need for so many hurting and broken people to receive that same degree of freedom. We're called into action and into joining the fight. And when Paul says, I fought the good fight, he's really giving us three options. He's saying, you can fight the good fight, you can fight the bad fight, or you can choose not to fight. And I think for many Christians, we fall victim to fighting the bad fight. The bad fight is where the love and the mercy and the character of Jesus and the presentation of the gospel are secondary to a sense of winning or accomplishing something in the earth. The bad fight is when Christians are more concerned with getting the Christian way than walking the Christian walk. You know, I've heard it said, if people hate you because of Jesus, that's expected. But if people hate Jesus because of you, that's a problem. It's a bad fight. It's easy to be tempted into trying to coerce people to adhere to Christian doctrine without ever allowing them to encounter the love of Jesus first. And here's the thing. I love Christian doctrine. I love it. I've given my life to follow it and to teach it and to live it every day of my life. But if I can be very honest with you, I would not adhere to Christian doctrine at all if I had not encountered the love of Jesus first. It's the only reason I live and act the way that I do is I have experienced the loving kindness, the grace and the mercy of Christ and his blood shed for me, his forgiveness offered to me, his righteousness bestowed upon me that I go, everything about my life has now changed. Jesus, whatever you need from me, I am yours. And when we flip the order, we fight a bad fight. 
And it's a fight that pits us against the world. It's a fight that pits us against other Christians. It's a fight that pits us against the oppressed and the poor and the marginalized and the abused. It's a bad fight. It's a bad fight. But it's easy to be led that way. And what's even easier is to choose not to fight at all. And that's the one that's particularly scary to me. Because to choose not to fight, yet to claim the benefits of salvation of Jesus, is a declaration that says, God, you are in my service. When I say jump, God, you jump. When I say bless me, God, you bless me. And when I say make the pain stop, you make the pain stop. I will live my life the way I want to live it, and I will ask you for help when I need it. And that scares me. When we don't fight, because it makes me wonder, do we really understand what we're professing with our mouth? How can I stand before God and proclaim that I, by nature, am a sinner in need of saving? God, I lay my life down to you. I call you Lord, which means master. I call you Lord of my life, and I ask you to be Savior of my soul. Please bless me so that I can do as I please. It doesn't make sense. And the temptation is to fight a bad fight or not to fight at all. But Paul says, I have fought the good fight. The good fight of faith, the good fight of faith, which comes from this place. I believe it's the place Paul operated his life out of. I believe it is the place each of us need to wrestle with and reflect. Paul knew his history of persecuting and killing Christians. He knew the damage he did to the church. He was intimately aware of that. He carried that, I believe, to his death the weight and the guilt that comes with living a lifestyle that against God. And all of us have lived in sin and in selfishness and in pride against God. And every day I believe Paul woke up, received the new mercies of Jesus and realized, God, I don't need you to bless me. You've already saved me. I've gotten the one thing that I need from you, my salvation. And truly, if he doesn't do another thing, I'm good because that's what I needed to be saved from my sin and from myself. And now, God, anything you give me extra is blessing. But all that I have is yours. All that I have is contributed to preaching this gospel, to doing the good work of God, and to living my life the way that Jesus lived it among his people. I believe that's the good fight. That's the good fight. When the church walks and lives, acts and breathes as the hands and feet of Jesus. Not selfishly, but out of humility. Paul says, I have fought the good fight, and all of us are called into action when we call upon the name of Jesus. But joining the fight is one thing, and finishing the fight is an entirely other thing. Oftentimes, starting is the hardest part, and that's on purpose. The devil's best strategy is to stop you before you even get started, and he will do everything he can to get you to quit before you even press play. 
In fact, that's his best tactic because once you start serving in the house of the Lord, once you start preaching this gospel, once you start participating in the work of the ministry, you begin to experience the joy and the blessing that comes from walking in your God-given purpose. And the devil cannot defeat you. I don't know if you know that this morning. He cannot touch you as a son of God. He can convince you to destroy yourself. He can convince you to quit. He can tell you it's not worth it. He can come against you up here, but he cannot lay a finger on your life. The battle with the enemy happens up top. He has not been granted authority over you, but he can whisper to you. And if he can't stop you from starting, he's going to do everything he can to get you to give up. And I think he does that through discouragement, distraction, and delay. He will tell you how undervalued, unappreciated, and unimportant you are. He will tell you your work matters not. Nobody sees you. Nobody cares about you. Just why are you even bothering serving these wretched people? Just just give up. To be discouraged literally means to have your courage taken from you. So the zeal and the passion and the life that we get as we reflect on the goodness of Jesus, how that changes us from the inside and motivates us into joining the fight, that is the thing the devil is after, to discourage you. He will take it from you. And it's a choice of what voices you listen to. Do you listen to the voice of discouragement or do you listen to the voice of encouragement? of a God who will never leave you nor forsake you, of a God who says, do not chase the approval of man, chase my approval. Be after me, because I am after you. A God that says, you are storing up treasures in heaven here on earth, and you do not see the benefit of your work, but I see it, and I am proud of you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Devil discourage you. He'll distract you. I've said it, and it's been said a number of times before. The devil doesn't have to defeat you to destroy you. He just has to distract you. He's just got to keep you preoccupied and busy. Have you ever noticed how you can binge five episodes of Netflix, and it's like nothing happened? It is two and a half, three hours of TV. You wake up. You come out. You're going, where am I? What time is it? What day is it? What's been going on? But the minute you open up your Bible, the phone is ringing, the texts are coming, those thoughts are coming back to your mind. The kids need you. Somebody's got to do something. The time, where did it go? What is that but very real spiritual warfare keeping you out of God's word and out of God's presence? Why do you think when you start praying, you start having all these other thoughts or you fall asleep? He will distract you. I'm so wary of all of the screens, all of the media, all of the information, all of the entertainment that we are inundated with every single day of our life. There are things that used to not be a priority that now are absolutely a priority. Like if you're not up on your shows, don't even join the group chat. Don't even come around. Stay away. And now I got to reorient my life just to get, be cool in the group chat. Like things that used to not matter seem to now matter so much. And what is the number one excuse we hear when people say why we can't read our Bible, why we can't pray, why we can't go to small group, why why we can't serve in the church? I don't have enough time. And what we really mean is I'm too distracted. There's too much opportunity. There's too many competing priorities. And the voice that I hear more often is the church will be fine, but these things need me. They need me. 
And if I don't have them, then it's all going to fall apart. It's the distraction. It's the distraction of the enemy. He's keeping you looking one way so you don't see the needs that stand before you. Or he'll delay you. He'll delay you. And the honor and the recognition and the promotion and the appreciation will not come in the timing that you think it ought to. You will not see the fruit of your labor when you thought you ought to. And you will grow frustrated and you will grow weary and you will wonder why I'm doing this anymore. But the good news in God is that we have the ability to combat discouragement with encouragement and the fruit of the spirit of joy that says it is a pleasure to be in God's will and to be in the house of the Lord. And I will let joy be the thing that reigns over my life even when I am most discouraged. I know I stand before a God who is pleased with me. We combat distraction with devotion and the spiritual fruit of self-control that says I am going to find a space and find a way to be disciplined and focused to Christ and his word first because that is my ultimate priority. And we combat the delay with the fruit of the spirit of patience that allows us to be long-suffering and to wait upon the Lord, to not give up in doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest. God has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. The question is, will we use it? Paul says, I fought the good fight, and we are called into action. And he can look back on the course of his life, having allowed the Holy Spirit to move in him to produce the fruit of the Spirit that has allowed him to overcome the attacks of the enemy that he might say, I have finished my race. I didn't give up. I didn't quit. When it was hard, I persisted. I found myself in God, and he carried me through. And I kept the faith along the way. Because to fight the fight and to finish the race, but to lose the faith is a hollow defeat. And I think the only way that we can keep the faith, as I've thought about this, how do we keep the faith in the midst of the world that we live in, the cultural context that we're in, in the daily battles of every day that we face? All I can think of is that we fix our eyes and our focus on the treasure of our faith, on the crown jewel of Christianity, on the one irreplaceable one, the one that we can lose everything else, but don't you lose him. Don't you take your eyes off of Jesus for one minute. He is the one who did it right. He is the one who did what we could not do. He is the one who says, the son of man did not come to be served. I came to serve. His life was lived as a living sacrifice poured out for many. He holds the cup of wine at the last supper and he says, this cup is the cup of a new covenant. It is my blood poured out for many. And when I hear Paul saying my life ought to be a drink offering that I pour out to God, I don't think about how scary or hard or intimidating that is. I think about Jesus, the one who did it for me already. And I find myself in him, the one who has poured his life out for me. I fix my eyes 
on the treasure that is in the field, the one that if you were to stumble upon it, you would sell everything you had to go and buy up that field just to get that treasure. And his name is Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust in him and to take him at his word. There is no getting to the end of the race without holding tight and holding fast to Jesus. You cannot do it. He ought to be the one thing we think about every day. And what Paul says is that if we are able to do this, stored up for us in heaven is a crown of righteousness. All I want to say about this is, is my, my time is about up here, is that we do not measure success the way that the earth measures success. And we do not seek trophies, accolades, or affirmations the way that the world seeks trophies, affirmations, and accolades. And as a man who humbly stands before you and tells you that the battle for the approval of man is one of the reigning battles in my life, I am so encouraged by the testimony of Paul whose eyes are not fixed on whether Timothy likes him or Barnabas is happy with him or anybody else, but whose eyes are fixed on the crown that is set before him. That the righteousness that Jesus promises him in this life will be realized in the next And that same crown is available, not just to Paul, he says, but to all who have loved his appearing. He calls back this image on the road to Damascus when Jesus appears to him. And Paul's response was not to harden his heart and to become embittered against Jesus, but to treasure and to love Jesus' appearance to him. It altered the course of his life and made him one of the most effective apostles in all of Christianity. And he knows now, holding on to that truth, he's fought a good fight, he's run a good race, he has kept his faith, and waiting for him is the only trophy that he's after, the approval and the affirmation of God his Father in heaven. So, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who though for the joy set before him, scorned the shame of this earth and embraced the cross that he might one day sit at the right hand of God. Let us, church, fix our eyes on that Jesus whose own eyes were not fixed on how the world would treat or respond to him, but it was fixed on a joy that was set before him, an eternal joy, an everlasting joy, a joy that sustains you every day of your life, a joy that keeps you going on the hardest and the darkest days, a joy that Jesus modeled for us and now bestows upon us who call upon his name. We too can scorn the shame of the earth, endure the crosses that we have been called to bear, and for the joy set before us, look to a heavenly reward that God has for us. This is what it looks like to live a life of long service to Jesus. To every day, give your life back to him. To every day, say, God, I live in service to you and to you alone. And if we can become a people 
who live like that, humbling ourselves every day before the Lord, pouring our lives out, fighting the good fights, the meaningful fights, the fights that matter, holding fast to the rock of our salvation, fixing our eyes on him. We can and will be a people who not only transform this community, but this region and this city. Because we will be the reflections of Christ and his love here on earth. We'll be the church of the long serve. The church that keeps going. The church that doesn't give up. That though these eight wards will be hard to plant, I have no doubt about it. We will persist and we will strive forward every single day to realize God's purposes for us and our life that many may know Jesus and his saving grace. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to help us be that type of people. Father, without you, we can do no good thing. That's what your word says. You are the vine, God, we are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing good. So Lord, we look to you, who though you were equal with God, Jesus, you did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you humbled yourself to the position of a servant. And you died a death, even a death on a cross. And God, who are we to think that if your calling was to come and to die, that ours would be any different? So God, have our lives and do with them what you have purposed in the earth for us to do. For we are created anew in Christ Jesus. We are the handiwork of God, created anew in him for good works that were planned far before we were here. God, shape this church. Form us into your image. Help us to be what you have called us to be as we find ourselves in Christ each and every day.